Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Kevin Dutton on black and white thinking. Prior to that, I wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to this podcast via Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. And give us a follow on Twitter and Facebook at BooksOnPod. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dr. Kevin Dutton is a research psychologist, best-selling author, and elite performance consultant. His books include Flipnosis, Split-Second Persuasion, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, and his newest book, the one we're talking about today, Black and White Thinking, The Burden of a Binary Brain in a Complex World. Kevin, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks, Trey. Uh, Thanks very much for having me on this podcast. Really excited by it. Absolutely, Kevin. So what was your goal with black and white thinking? Well, basically, Trey, black and white thinking, if you were to put me on the spot and ask me what it's really about, it expands into 300 pages. That wonderful quote by Noel Gallagher, the uh, lead guitarist in Oasis, that he said about his brother and his fellow Oasis bandmate, Liam. And I actually start the book with this. And Noel describes his brother, Liam, as a man with a fork in a world of soup. And in the book, I basically argue, hopefully convincingly, that Liam is not alone. And actually, we all have forks in a world of soup. And as the author, I guess, I'm kind of like the waiter loitering in the corner of the restaurant with a tray of spoons, (laughs) diplomatically trying to catch your eye. So that's pretty much what I try to do with black and white thinking. And, well, we'll see if I was successful or not. Among other things, this book is about the illusion of order. What do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. Perhaps it's best if I answer that by telling you the story which pretty much inspired me to write the book. A hundred or so years ago, not exactly sure when, Russia and Finland were renegotiating the border between the two countries. And it just so happened that it went literally right through the middle of an elderly Finnish farmer's farm. So when I say right through the middle, I mean literally right through the middle. His (laughs) barn was in Finland and his cow shed was in Russia. Anyway, one day a delegation of Russian officials turned up on the Finnish farmer's door and they said to him, look, you've got to make a decision. You need to decide which side of the border you want to live in. Do you want to live in Russia or do you want to live in Finland? The reason is we've got a census coming up here in Russia and we need to decide who's eligible. Uh, Now, this obviously put the farmer in a bit of a predicament because Russia had actually been very good to him over the years. They'd um, given him help on the land and subsidies and free running water and all that. But at the end of the day, he was Finnish. Anyway, after a few moments thought, he comes to a decision and he says, look, I'm immensely grateful for the support that Mother Russia has given me over the years. She's helped me through some very tough times. However, on reflection and with a very heavy heart, I think I'd like to see out my days in Finland. You see, I'm an old man now and I can't take the cold like I used to. 
another Russian winter might kill me. <laughs> now, yeah, it's a very kind of funny and cutesy story. But you know what, Trey? It also contains some profound wisdom. And that is that we think like light travels in fast, straight lines. We're born with what I describe as a categorization instinct. And we have to have this categorization instinct. Evolution had to program us with it because drawing lines just like the farmer did, just like any border is really, drawing lines helps us to simplify the world. It saves us time and it makes it easier for us to do stuff. I mean, a great example is imagine if you went into the library to find a book and you discovered that library didn't have a classification system. Okay, well, good luck with that. You'd be looking forever if you were just searching randomly for it. Imagine if you went into a zoo and the animals weren't segregated, it would be mayhem. Imagine if there weren't different kinds of shops, but every shop sold exactly the same thing. So we need to have this categorization instinct, what we call in the book this kind of fallacy of misplaced concreteness, because life is just one whoosh of everything and nothing. And in order to make sense of the world, in order to make sense of our environment, in order to make it predictable, and in order for us to navigate it with any degree of coherence, we need to chunk it, we need to divide it up into nice, neat categories. And I argue in the book, putting it very simply, that chess works because the board is black and white. Life works because our brains are black and white. So on the subject of categorizing things, you spend your first chapter covering this, Kevin. How does categorical perception develop in children? Well, in children, it's really interesting because we start off the world with what William James, the father of Western psychology, described as a blooming, buzzing confusion. Everything is basically much of a muchness. And as children, we gradually learn to group the world into ever more nuanced categories. So we might start with very, very general categories like things with four legs, things that move, etc., etc. And then we might start grouping those into categories of animals in general or living things versus non-animate objects. And then gradually over time, Trey, we develop a more nuanced system of categorization. So in the end, you might end up, you know, if you're a specialist in a specific field of botany, for instance, you might end up with a very, very nuanced system of categorization. Whereas, you know, you might start off as a child saying, look at the pretty flower. If you were a botanist, you might point to a flower and give it its Latin name, for instance. So we start off very, very generally, and then we gradually hone our categories down. And this is really interesting because the question that that begs is, is there an optimal level of categorization in everyday life? And I think there is, and we all kind of know generally what it is, but we can't actually put our fingers on it. So the example I give in the book is one where I, I might give you directions. So imagine if I was giving you directions and I told you to turn right at the end of the road. And the example I give is by a square concrete structure with a door four windows and a drive that has a mammal which 
barks, has four legs, fur and a wagging tail in the garden, right? You'd think I was completely nuts, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. um, why didn't I just tell you to turn left at the house with a dog? Because as soon as I mention those words, house and dog, your brain will immediately fill in the details automatically, right? On the other hand, imagine I said, take a right at vermiculated artisans dwelling with a mansard roof and a bergamasco shepherd right in front of it. Right there again, you'd think I was a complete lunatic. Because this time, instead of being overly general, I'm actually being over specific. And so there's a happy medium that we aim to strike. The function of language trays basically to differentiate this from that in the most efficient way possible, really. And that's what we strive to do on an everyday basis. And that's what categorization is really all about. We'll certainly get to language a little bit later on in this conversation. But prior to that, I wanted to ask you about the Sorites paradox. What exactly is it in relation to the overall conversation that you are having with black and white thinking? Yeah, the Sorites paradox is a rather obscure ancient Greek paradox, which was discovered or invented, I suppose, Trey, by the uh, ancient Greek philosopher, a rather obscure one called Eubelides. And it goes as follows, okay? I'll do my best to describe it. It is a little bit complicated. So one grain of sand is not a heap of sand, okay? Which is pretty obvious, right? A single grain of sand is, by definition, not a heap of sand. Now, hopefully, Something that will also make sense is that by adding a single grain of sand to something that is not a heap of sand will not turn it into a heap, okay? So it's silly to think that a single grain of sand would make the crucial difference between something that is not a heap and something that is a heap, okay? Which means that we've got a bit of a problem on our hands because from these two premises, the logical conclusion is that no matter how much sand we add, we'll never make a non-heap into a heap, okay? Now, of course, we know in real life, so to speak, that heaps of sand exist. So the question is, if you start off with a single grain of sand and systematically add individual grains to it one by one, you'll eventually end up with a heap, right? Mm -hmm. But this is the crucial question. At what precise point in the process does the single grain of sand that is not a heap if you're still with me, <laughs> become a heap after, oh, I don't know, 1,999,999 grains when the 10 millionth grain is added or whatever? Clearly not, because we know that the addition of a single grain of sand cannot turn a non-heap into a heap. And so this is really interesting because this shows that a lot of things in life proceed by degree. And yet our attention, even though we can't kind of see it changing in front of our very eyes, our attention is drawn to changes once they occur rather than changes when they're in the process of occurring. So you can see the, a good example of this would be the minute hand on very good clocks and watches. You actually don't see it move. But if you come back to it after, say, five minutes, obviously you'll notice a change. And it works in all kinds of things. Weight gain, weight loss, baldness, for instance, another one. Any kind of very, very slow change involves the principle of the Sorites 
paradox. Don't ask me to solve it. I've got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea how to solve it. It's a really, really tricky one. And it's one of these logical conundrums, really. It's, it's, it's really kind of good fun to try and get your head around, really. But it's, it absolutely demonstrates the premise of things being on a grayscale continuum, really, but our attention being drawn to the black and white changes once they've occurred. Well, I feel like this paradox, it has a loose relation with the viewfinder principle because, in a way, it's relative as to whether or not the gathering of sand has become a heap based on whether you've been sitting there watching it the entire time versus somebody who happens upon this uh, this pile of sand and says, oh, yes, that's a heap of sand. So what exactly is the viewfinder principle? The viewfinder principle is one of the central principles of the book, Trey. And basically, I argue that our brains have kind of an inbuilt viewfinder, really. So just as there exists, you know, if you sit in front of a television screen or at the cinema, there exists like an optimal distance away from the screen where you can get the best view from the clearest picture. I think that the same exists in the brain for how we perceive information. So Sometimes it's good to get the big picture, which is a phrase which is often used in the English language. Sometimes it's really good to sweat the small stuff. And it kind of goes back a little bit to what I was saying about, you know, optimal categorization, really, when I was explaining to you about directions. The viewfinder principle, most of the time, we are able to gauge it correctly. And we almost by instinct are able to assess the right distance from the screen, as it were, at which to sit. But sometimes we get it wrong. And I think a great example of that was the example I gave about directions. I also remember um, uh, there was a very funny incident. One of my favourite shows was The Simpsons. And there was a really, really funny episode in The Simpsons, I seem to remember, where they had a supermarket called Monstro Mart. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember it. I don't I know do. if you remember uh, seeing it. And I, I think the slogan was something like, where shopping is a baffling ordeal. <laughs> and, you know, product choice was unlimited. Shelving went right up to the ceiling. I think it was nutmeg or some kind of spice came in 12-pound boxes. And there was this sign at the express checkout which read 1,000 items or less, um, <laughs> which is great. As You know, I'm a big, big fan of The Simpsons. But that, again, it's funny, but it conceals a fundamental truth, which is you know, related to the viewfinder. And that is, you know, we have an instinctive sense of the right distance to sit away from the screen and process information. And if we under-process or if we over-process, sometimes that can lead to confusion. And often, as we've seen with that example with The Simpsons or, you know, in the direction example I gave earlier, it can also form the basis of humor as well. No question about that. What are the potential benefits and pitfalls of the viewfinder principle with sports performance? Yeah, I mean, I think as an elite sports person, you need to be able to get some perspective, I think, on your performance. And I think if you become too focused internally, in sport, if you become too embedded in, say, the practice or the training, and you become too introspective, and I've seen this with some elite sports people that I work with, actually, you lose the kind of the naturalness which comes with great sporting talent and great sporting prowess. And you, in a sense, get in the way 
of your own performance. So I think that there comes a point where obviously you need great focus in sport, but you also need the ability to step away from yourself and not let yourself get in the way. And I think that too much focus, too much introspection, too much rumination can take away a little bit of the natural flair, the natural ability. And we see this. You don't have to talk about elite sport, Trey. You can, you know, anybody that's ever concentrated very, very carefully about walking up a flight of stairs is in the same boat because, you know, chances are as soon as you really concentrate on putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to trip up. So there comes a point where actually a lot of the time you just have to back yourself, as it were. I think that was a phrase that Roger Federer used, actually. Sometimes you've just got to go out there and back yourself, if I'm not mistaken. And so I think that's how the viewfinder principle works a little bit in elite sports. Sometimes, you know, a lot of the actions of elite sportsmen and women are automatic. They're instinctive. And I think concentrating too hard, trying to make the unconscious conscious can sometimes really impair performance. Evolutionarily speaking, why are we so good at not overthinking things, whether it's giving out too many directions or not thinking too much about putting one foot in front of the other as you're walking upstairs? Why are we as humans so good at that? Well, I think if we look at how the categorization instinct developed in the first place, Trey, if you go back to our ancestors, our prehistoric ancestors millions of years ago, the world that they lived in was much more unpredictable in a sense than the world we live in today. And a lot of the decisions that our prehistoric ancestors had to make were very black and white. They were very all or nothing. They were very either or. So, you know, if you came across a rustle in the bushes or something, you would instantly think, well, if you had any sense anyway, I've got to get away from this because it could be a predator. It could be something that's going to eat me. You didn't think twice about, you know, whether it might be a bit of breeze or the wind or something. You erred on the side of caution. You got out of there fast because the chances are that if you didn't do that, you'd end up learning the hard way that it was a saber-toothed tiger or a bear or something like that. And so this kind of basic fight or flight instinct, which we developed very early on and we share with many fellow species in the animal kingdom, I think has always been there with us. And this is something I think which the rest of our categorization instinct over the millions of years that followed has kind of piggybacked on. That was the kind of blueprint for it. If there was a rustle in the bushes or something like that, we had to think, we, well, we didn't have to think at all. We just had to act. It was all unconscious. And I think that was basically the earliest beginnings, as it were, of the categorization instinct. It originated in the binary approach avoidance reflexes of our, well, I guess if you want to go right back, of our pre-Cambrian single-celled life forms. And I think it's now immutably installed in us and the rest of the animal kingdom as this kind of cognitive categorization system that we have. And we will come back to fight or flight as part of a trio of terms or ideas that are huge when it comes to the power of persuasion. But that's in a couple of minutes. I wanted to ask you first, what exactly are cognitive closure and cognitive complexity? Well, cognitive closure, Trey, is basically our need to reach decisions, reach conclusions. We have a phrase in the English language, we like to have closure. 
And we like to solve problems. We like to reach decisions. And we like to be able to solve problems. And some of us like to be able to do that quicker than others. And some of us have a greater tolerance for ambiguity, as it were. And we're all on a spectrum, really, on our need for cognitive closure. Some of us, as I say, have a real intolerance of ambiguity, and we want to reach decisions on the minimum of information. And others of us are quite willing to kind of be able to deal with the uncertainty, to be able to deal with the open-endedness of things. It's often confused with the need for cognitive complexity because cognitive complexity is basically the amount of information or the number of angles that we're willing to entertain in order to solve a problem, in order to arrive at a decision, in order to make a judgment. So people with a high need for cognitive complexity are able to consider lots of different strands of information and interweave them together to reach a, a more nuanced conclusion. People with a lower need for cognitive complexity are able to basically make decisions, in fact, like making decisions in a less complex way, as it were, taking in less facts and figures and less axes of and dimensions of information. So that's the basic difference between cognitive complexity and cognitive closure. Cognitive closure, as you might expect, there's a lot of situational factors which can impact on our different needs for cognitive closure. You know, we've all been tired. We've all been short of time when, you know, actually the decision making is at a premium and you need to make a decision quickly. So, you know, that's a great example. You know, if you have to make a decision quickly, if you if you have to make a judgment quickly and you're tired or you're short of time, all of a sudden that impacts on your need for cognitive closure, your tolerance of ambiguity, your tolerance of the grayness of life. And you tend to make decisions far quicker under those conditions. So that's a good example, really, of how situational factors can impact on cognitive closure. I wanted to get back to the influence of language now, Kevin. How did a study conducted by memory expert Elizabeth Loftus in the 1970s so adeptly show the power of language? Yeah, it was a great, a classic study by Elizabeth Loftus. So basically, Loftus showed a video recording of two motor vehicles making contact with each other, two different bunches of students. And one bunch, she asked, at what speed did the two cars make contact with each other? Something like that. And the other group, she asked, at what speed did the two cars smash into each other? That was the only difference between the two conditions. And that simple change in language the way that the question was phrased had a direct impact on the actual number the two different groups of students gave. So the group of students that was asked at what speed did the two cars uh, make contact with each other gave a far lower estimate of the speed that the cars were traveling than the group that were asked at what speed did the two cars smash into each other. And if I, my memory serves me right, in the second condition, where the students were asked at what speed did the two cars smash into each other, the students reported when they were asked seeing broken glass at the scene. 
whereas the previous group who were just asked what speed did the cars make contact with each other didn't, and there wasn't any broken glass at the scene. So that's a very good example of how the way language is used can bias thinking. And of course, that has legal implications. That's why here in the UK, sure, it's the same in the US. Lawyers or attorneys aren't allowed to ask leading questions of people who they are interviewing in the court because it might bias their perception in an unfair way. Linguistically speaking, do we as societies all see and label the basic colors fairly similarly? Well, we do, but there are cultural differences. And this is quite a contentious issue among color psychologists, the linguistic relativity hypothesis. And, you know, we have a number of basic color terms here in the West But uh, there are some cultures in the world, the Himba tribe in Namibia and the Barinmo tribe, for instance, in Papua New Guinea, which don't have the same basic color terms, same number of basic color terms, for instance. And they lump blue and green, for instance, into the same color, whereas we perceive a difference between blue and green. The Himba and the Barinmo do not. So there are significant differences across cultures between the way we view certain colours. And you know what, Trey, I tell a story in a book, I'll tell it to you now if you like. There's actually individual differences in the ability of people, you know, in everyday life to see colours. And the story which I tell in the book involves when my wife and I went to a paint shop a few years ago. We went into this DIY shop in Oxford and we were after getting some blue paint that the shop had featured on a bathroom wall in one of their flyers in one of their adverts and I'll never forget it I went down there and I said to one of the assistants have you got any of this I showed him the flyer and he said "Um, I'm not sure I'll have to check the system and I literally couldn't believe it there were pots of blue paint all over the store so I said to him are you telling me that you don't have any blue paint and he looked at me and he said listen I've been in the paint business for 30 years And when you've been in the paint business for that long, when you just say blue, it means nothing. Okay, I haven't seen blue since, I don't know, the late 80s or something (laughs) like that. And I thought he was joking, but he was serious. He said, you know, I've seen Aegean Odyssey, Celestial Haze. I've seen Cerulean Rhapsody, but blue, no. What you're looking at, and then he took the flyer from me. He said, what you're looking at here, and I think it was something like Velvet Breeze. Now, every time I step into my shower, I think of that trip to the DIY shop. It's a very good example, actually, Trey, of what we were talking about earlier, of how optimal categorization is dependent on context and how arguably the environment that you're in can determine quite literally what you see. It was fascinating to see. I'm sure he was winding me up a little bit, but actually, you know, and I've never tested it, But somebody out there might want to do it. You know, if you want to, you know, go into your local DIY shop or test people that work for Pantone, say, for instance, or or some paint manufacturer and see if they're better at discriminating between fine shades of color than the rest of us. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they are. It's just so fascinating to think about that there are cultures that don't have a word for the color blue, that they just consider it another shade of green. But then again, it gets back to your point, something you were just talking about, that if you don't know how to categorize something, then it may not exist in your mind. And when you think about it, and this is something else that you point out in the book, 
there were times not that long ago where there really weren't words for a lot of colors that we now consider to be a common part of the overall palette. That's absolutely right. And I think if you look back in the famous example of that is if you look back in the Odyssey, for instance, in the Iliad, there's no word for blue. The sea is described, I think, something as wine red. And so, you know, it's very, very interesting that blue is like the last color to be invented, as it were. And, you know, if you think about it, Trey, blue actually doesn't appear that often in nature. And so, you know, it's hardly surprising. And the color blue, the theory goes, is basically came into our consciousness with the development of the Egyptian blue dye that the ancient Egyptians developed. And actually, this was a very, very sought after and lucrative dye that existed thousands of years BC. And it was a couple of thousand years BC or something like that. And basically, it was a financial incentive, really, rather than an evolutionary incentive to come up with a name for blue, because this dye was basically the Egyptians were exporting it all across the Mediterranean and the Levant, and it was making them a lot of money. So they had to come up with a name for it. And that's how it started, really. One of the most important concepts that you expand on in this book is framing. What is framing? Framing refers to how you present information to the person that you're communicating with. And probably the best thing I can do is give you an example. Otherwise, it gets rather dry. And it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Back in 2012, we had the Olympics here in the UK, in London. And 62,000 people, I think it was, attended the dress rehearsal of the London Olympics, but hardly anyone, and this is incredible, hardly anyone leaked the contents of that dress rehearsal on social media. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it, given all the opportunities that there is to do such a thing. Now, no one can say definitively why that was, but word has it that the director, Danny Boyle, stood up and asked everyone present at the dress rehearsal not to, and this is important, not to keep it a secret, but to save the surprise. Now, you might think at the outset that's a trivial, insignificant detail, right? Maybe. I like to think of it as persuasion genius, okay? Hmm. And a brilliant example of framing. I'm going to give Danny Boyle the benefit of the doubt. Let's look at what Boyle said. The idea of keeping it a secret, we kind of like to share secrets, don't we? I know we all think that keeping a secret is a moral thing to do, but actually there's part of us which kind of likes to share secrets just to a friend, you know, just to a, someone we trust. But no one likes to spoil a surprise, do they? And that is a brilliant example of different frames for exactly the same information. Keep it a secret, save the surprise. And I think the way that Danny Boyle framed that particular message that night was one of the reasons that nobody or very few people leaked the contents of the London Olympics dress rehearsal on social media. I think it was persuasion genius. Other people might think it was a bit of luck, but uh, I'm, I'm prepared to give Danny Ball the benefit of the doubt there. That's a good example of what framing is. It's how you present information. 
Kevin, another point with persuasion has to do with something called salience. How is salience illustrated by a story between a couple of members of the Rolling Stones in the 1980s? Yeah, it's a great story. I think it appears in Keith Richards's autobiography. And sometime in the mid-1980s, the Stones were on tour. I think it was in Europe somewhere. And they were back in the hotel. Basically, it had been a long night. And Charlie Watts, the band's drummer, had gone to bed. And Mick Jagger and I dare say some of the other members of the band were still going strong in the early hours. And Mick basically picked up the phone. I think he'd had a few drinks. I think it's a fair bet to say that. And he decided to have a joke and he picked up the phone and he rang up Charlie Watts's room. And he said in a slurred voice, where's my fucking drummer? <laughs> anyway, so Charlie Watts puts the phone down, dresses up in his three-piece suit and his George Cleverly brogues, which I think he wears. And he came down and he walked into the foyer and there's Mick, the worst for wear. And Charlie Watts chins him. He punches him. And just before he strides away and clicks off back to his room, he says to Mick, don't you ever talk to me like that again. I'm not your fucking drummer. You're my fucking singer. (laughs) (laughs) And he disappears. Now, Charlie Watts is a pretty cool, well, Mick Jagger is a pretty cool guy, but Charlie Watts is a pretty cool guy. And I think, again, you know what, Trey, is a great example of framing and what's important to different people. And, you know, it kind of put Mick in his place a little bit because, you know, obviously being the lead singer of a band, you know, especially as big as the Rolling Stones, you're bound to have a bit of an ego. You're bound to perceive it as your band and the rest of the members belonging to you. But actually, Charlie Watts demonstrated that actually, you know, it was a band of equals. And, um, you know, he was perfectly entitled to see Mick in exactly the same way as Mick saw him. You know, Mick was his singer. He wasn't Mick's drummer. Great example of framing from the great Charlie Watts. How important is it for somebody trying to persuade another person or group of people to utilize a perceived self-interest when making a decision on something? Many years ago, I actually spent some time with some of the world's top con artists here in the UK and um, across in, in the US. And while I was with them, I posed them a question and I said, what in your opinion is the single most important factor in getting someone to do something for us? And, you know, virtue to a man. And they were all men. They gave me the same answer. Ninety nine percent of people make the same fundamental error when it comes to persuasion. OK, ninety nine percent of people think that the fundamental secret of persuasion is to get someone to do something for you. But it's wrong. The fundamental secret of persuasion is to get someone to do something for you. And a great example of this occurred a few years ago. There was a very uh, well-known British business person who was uh, very well known to be a fierce interrogator, fierce interviewer. And one day, a young man, this is a great example of how self-interest works. One day, a young guy looking for a job drops past his office for an interview. And this business guy fixes him fiercely in his gaze. And he says to him, young man, I hear on the grapevine that you are brilliant persuader. So I've got a little challenge for you. And he picks his water jug up and he puts it on his desk. And he says, see this water jug here? 
I want you to sell it to me. Well, the young man thinks about it for a minute, doesn't panic. You know, you can imagine how terrifying that would be just to be lumbered with that situation thrown in straight away. He doesn't panic. He gets up, walks over to the corner of the room, picks up the waste paper basket and carries it over to the guy's desk. So under the guy's watchful gaze, doesn't know what he's doing, he empties the contents of the waste paper basket out onto the centre of his desk. So you've got random pieces of paper, discarded documents, all kinds of things like that. And he puts it down and then he takes the water jug and he puts it to one side out of the businessman's reach, out of the guy he's interviewing, out of his reach. And then he takes the fellow's cigar lighter and he proceeds to set light to the pile of rubbish in front of him on his desk. And then he holds the water jug up in his hand and he says, how much are you going to give me for it? <laughs> now, that is a brilliant example of harnessing the power of self-interest to get yourself out of a very, very tricky situation. I've got no doubt whatsoever that he got the job. I would have certainly given him the job. Again, it's about reframing the situation. It's about turning it round. And, you know, my father was, a, among other things, a market trader, not on the stock market, but on the streets. He basically sold all kinds of rubbish to anybody, really. And he was a very, very persuasive man. He wasn't educated, Trey, but he was very, very shrewd. And I'll give you another great example because it's quite funny, which involves my father. I always remember one evening him taking me out to an Indian restaurant for dinner. And just as he's about to pay the bill, he suddenly turns around to me and he says, Kev, if there's one thing I want you to remember in life, it's this. Persuasion isn't about getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's about giving them a reason to do what they do want to do. So watch and learn. So with that, he takes his spoon and tinkles it against his glass and he stands up. So the entire restaurant falls silent. OK, so picture the scene. <laughs> We've got a restaurant full of people who've never seen us before, who've never seen each other before, all sitting there watching our every word right so my dad says right i'd just like to thank everyone for coming now i know that some of you have come from just round the corner and some of you have come from a little bit further afield but i want you to know that you're all very welcome and that it's very much appreciated oh and that there's a pub across the road called the king's arm something like that hmm. in which we'll be hosting a little drinks reception after this it would be great to see you all there right at which point he starts to clap at which point the entire restaurant starts to collapse. So picture the scene. As I say, we've got a restaurant full of people, never seen us before, never seen each other before. They're all now applauding wildly because none of them want to be seen as the gate crashes to the party, right? So anyway, as we're leaving, Trey, remember, I'm only about nine or ten. I can't resist it. At that, I say, we're not really going to the pub, are we? And I'll never forget, he puts his arm around me and he says, of course not, son, but let me tell you something. That lot in the restaurant are... And my mate, Malcolm, he's just taken over as landlord. You'll make a few quid tonight, a few pounds tonight. And that's a brilliant example of how you appeal to someone's self-interest. My dad, I mean, forget the morality of getting up and just doing that and, you know, <laughs> telling a totally false story. That's another story in itself. But... He was appealing to people's self-interest. He was saying there's free drinks across the road. There's a lovely party. Get over there. The fact that there wasn't is a moot point. But that was the kind of thing that my dad used to do without batting an eye, by the way. So um, but that's another story altogether. But self-interest is probably the most powerful principle. 
in getting people to do things for you. Never rely on favours or anything like that. If you can frame something so that it's in their interests rather than your own, you're going to have a much better chance of getting them to do what you want them to do than if it's the other way around. And the apex of persuasion is something you call in this book supersuasion, the ability to consistently convince others to do things that they may or may not want to do, and also the ability to do so on a large scale. You write about a great example of Donald Trump in 2016 and polarizing a voter base that catapulted him to the U.S. presidency. People can read the book to hear more about that. And the key to supersuasion is something you refer to as super frames, like fight versus flight, which we obviously talked about a little bit earlier on, us versus them, and right versus wrong. In thinking about us versus them, and maybe it's because I do hearken back to what happened with Trump in 2016 and just how things seem to evolve since then, it seems like we have gone too far and that this avenue is being exploited by entirely too many people. And I guess the best example of its toxicity is if you take five minutes on Twitter right now. Have we gone too far with the us versus them mentality? I think, yeah, that's a fair argument to make, Trey. I think, you know, you go back to 2016 and Donald Trump, you just have to go back to last week, what happened in the Capitol. You've right. got exactly the same principles that work there. So, as I say, fight versus flight. Look at the title of Trump's rallies, Save America. You've got fight versus flight imbued right there, okay? When he talks about the election being stolen by radical left Democrats, our election being stolen, he says, by these left radical Democrats. You've got us versus them right there. And then if you, the right versus wrong, look at stealing the election, the whole idea of the election being stolen from us. Stop the steal, as Trump says. It's a very, very clever strategy that he's using. He's using, he's framing his message to coincide with these three ancient evolutionary super categories that correspond to three major turning points in our evolutionary history, fight or flight, obvious, we've talked about that earlier, us versus them. When our prehistoric ancestors started living in small groups around five to six million years ago, we developed a sense of us versus them to maintain group coherence and group cohesion. And then, of course, right versus wrong developed much more recently as group size increased to arguably keep those groups together to prevent rampant self-interest, stealing a march on, in, on, on collectivism and group norms and keeping the group together. Now, these three, what I call super categories, basically are lodged in our brains because they're so important. And if you can frame your message so that it appeals to them, as I you know, gave you an example there, Trump did with the, you know, save America, that's fight, flight. Out, they're stealing our election. That's us, them. Stop the steal. That's right, wrong. Whether you are right or wrong, you are going to get people to sit up and, and notice. You know, a few years ago when I was writing another book, I interviewed one of the UK's top attorneys, top lawyers. And I'll never forget what he said to me, Trey. He said, you know what, Kevin? He said, information travels round the brain like electricity travels round a circuit. It takes the path of least resistance. And that is very true. And he said, you know what? 
if you and I are up against each other in court and I can make my version of events travel round the brains of the jury quicker and simpler than you can make your version of events travel round the brains of the jury, I am going to win the case and you are going to lose it. And that is very, very true. I think any lawyer will tell you that. And that's what Trump is good at. Or he was good. I think he's run out of gas. I think finally, well, not everybody, but I think, you know, the the game is up well and truly in, in all kinds of ways. But that's what he's been good at. He's been good at presenting information that travels round the brains of his supporters much, much quicker, much simpler than alternative forms of information. Unfortunately, these hostilities exist on both sides, and I'm putting both in parentheses because I think a lot of us do reside in the gray area, Kevin. Your final chapter is titled Redrawing the Lines. How do we redraw the lines to reverse this overall hostility, this general hostility that seems to exist between people right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Trey. And and you know what? I think social media has got, I think you touched upon it earlier, I think social media has got a lot to answer for in this respect. At no time in our history has our sense of identity been so dependent on what we say or believe, or at least seem to say or believe. So when we argue these days or make a point, just to come back to the previous example, we think like lawyers rather than scientists, as someone said. And, and and I think that's a brilliant, brilliant analogy. Rather than trying to get to the truth, we try to win the argument. Compromise or backing down, I think, is seen these days as, as a retreat from this highly prized, high premium certainty of black and white. It's seen as a retreat from that kind of binary checkerboard pattern into weak, indecisive gray. And I think that it's all tied up with identity and social media. I think that what social media gives us, before I come on to what we can do about it, I think what social media gives us, it gives us the opportunity to see millions of people who are like us. It also gives us the opportunity to see millions of people who are not like us as well. And, you know, it comes back to optimal categorization. We also need to be able to define ourselves optimally, too. We need to be part of an in-group. And we also need to feel that we have out-groups as well that we're not part of. That's also part of our, our psyche. And I think if you throw in, you know, the fact that we're competing for scarce social resources on social media, you know, there was a an amazing stat I heard a few years ago that, Basically, Western city dwellers like us take in as much information during the course of a 24 hour period of the, as the brains of those who lived in rural medieval Britain would take in during the course of an entire lifetime, something like that. I think if you throw in those, you know, that competition for scarce social resources, I think if you also throw in the observation that we're all clamoring for, you know, attention, I think you're going to get the ingredients you're going to get the perfect storm for what I call an identity war and with that you're going to get cancel culture you're going to get othering you're going to get trolling you're going to get fake news and all that kind of thing so you know as you say I mean what can we do about it well I think I hate to say it but I think books like black and white thinking are very important I think we need to be aware we need to raise awareness I think also in a more practical level I think we can start phasing out discriminatory employment practices 
as well, which are quite rife. And there was a, a study I heard uh, not so long ago, which looked at the power of blind auditions. And I think the figure was something like orchestras that had blind auditions were 46%, something like that, more likely to hire female musicians than if they didn't have blind auditions. So we can roll that out to other forms of employment. I think tackling generalised assumptions as well by being clear that a particular attribute is associated with with an individual and not their group. So we need to get away from stereotyping. Social psychological fact that that it that is very well known is that we're more likely to see members of out groups as all the same. We've got a bias to see members of our in group as much more eclectic and much more different. So. People might say, well, people who are alcoholics just lack willpower. You know, it's it's just as simple as that. People who are obese, for instance, should just exercise more. You know, that's a simple solution. Well, that may be the case in some cases, but actually it's far more complicated than that in a lot of other cases. It comes down to educating ourselves and raising our levels of awareness. Let's say you've got a fear of spiders, for instance. Let's take a clinical psychology analogy. You've got a fear of spiders. How do you get around that? Well, you learn more about them and you go through a program of what we call repeated exposure. So, you know, you look at pictures of spiders and then you see one from a distance and then gradually get closer and closer and closer over time until you're able to pick one up. And I think if we're frightened of outgroups, if we're suspicious of outgroups, I think we could just do something simple like, you know, taking that first step and maybe making our circles of friends a little bit more diverse to reduce the fear and the suspicion that we have. I think, again, you know, social media is very interesting in this. You know, there are certain dating sites like OkCupid, I think, and Hinge, which actually filter out. There is a filter function that you can request on these dating sites where you can only be put in contact with people of the same political views as yourself, for instance. So, you know, there you've got social media directly drawing a line between people. So there's a number of things we can do, Trey, but I think the number one common denominator is raising awareness and educating ourselves, being aware that these lines exist. And, you know, especially with the super categories, fight, flight, us, them, right, wrong, you know, look at the way Trump has used them, being aware how these things, these kinds of persuasive undertones can be used and concealed in information by master manipulators to get us to do their bidding. I think, you know, we can start training ourselves. Once you know about these things, fight, fly, us, them, right, wrong, we can start being on the lookout for information that's manipulating us. So those are some great thoughts on how black and white thinking can impact some of the larger things happening in this world right now. Final question, how can black and white thinking benefit us in daily life? Well, I think in daily life, it's very interesting over here at the moment with the COVID situation, as I'm sure it is over in the US. During the summer with our first lockdown, we're now in the middle of a second lockdown, The government had a very, very simple message, which really, really worked. And it was stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS, NHS uh, meaning National Health Service. And that was very simple. It was very black and white. People interpreted it. Well, there was no interpretation. It was absolutely crystal clear. 
And sometimes in situations where, you know, actually high stakes situations where lives are dependent on it, black and white thinking, although it can, as we've touched upon, you know, with stuff like stereotyping and prejudice and bias, grouping everyone together, as it were, while it can lead us into trouble in a lot of situations, actually, there are some situations where black and white thinking can actually help us. And that is a great example of that. You know, I was on holiday a couple of years ago, Trey, and I'll never forget it. I saw a purse which was had been kind of left on the street. It was it was empty. I did check, by the way, to see if it was empty. And um, <laughs> it had a little caption on the on the front of it, and it said, "Life is simple, and we insist on making it complicated." And I thought to myself, you know what? How wrong that is. Actually, it's the other way around. Life is complicated, but we insist on trying to make it simple. In doing so. We make it very complicated. So so it comes right back to where we started, really, with Noel Gallagher, you know, talking about his brother, Liam. He's a man with a fork in a world of soup. We've come full circle. That's exactly what we are. And basically, black and white thinking is saying to everybody, hey, maybe we should think about getting some spoons. Kevin Dutton is a research psychologist, best-selling author, and elite performance consultant. His books include Flipnosis, Split-Second Persuasion, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, The Good Psychopaths' Guide to Success, and the book we've been talking about today, Black and White Thinking, The Burden of a Binary Brain in a Complex World. Kevin, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Uh, Trey, it's an absolute pleasure and thank you very much for having me on and thank you for the kind words about the book. I really hope your listeners enjoy it. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to give us a follow on social at Books on Pod and hear every episode as well as subscribe to this podcast through booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.